So just to start out, some of the things we're going to talk about today include the requirements for the regulated community. And so let me start out by saying, I know some of you are from other states and are part of large healthcare networks, which do have a presence in California. And in California, as of 2009, we had a regulation that was put into effect regarding aerosol transmissible diseases in the healthcare setting and correctional settings and uh, also laboratories and that kind of thing. And we'll talk about the scope and application in a little bit. But this doesn't necessarily apply to everyone. Uh, it's a little bit stricter than a lot of the guidelines that come out. But if you do have a California presence, it does apply to you. And then the other thing is, I know a number of states have been wanting to use this as a model or a guideline. So we'll just sort of go through the standard and talk about some of the basic requirements today. We'll also talk about uh, exposure control plans and some of the areas that need to be implemented. Uh, some published case studies from some of the very first investigations under this standard, and then we'll identify some of the high hazard procedures. So why do we need to comply with aerosol transmissible disease standard? Well, in California, under Title VIII, California Code of Regulations, Section 5199, it addresses aerosol transmissible diseases, obviously, in a variety of healthcare settings, and it really targets aerosol and droplet hazards that are inhalation hazards. There's another standard, 5199.1, which covers zoonoses. So it's more uh, targeting biosecurity in the context of maybe it was a poultry farm and you had an outbreak of a zoonotic pathogen, or maybe uh, it was some type of emergency response and you had a zoonotic pathogen, that kind of thing. So those are the two regulations. What is an aerosol? I know some of you may be administrators and you don't really have an extensive background in healthcare or laboratories or infection disease or infection control. So basically, if most peer-reviewed journals that you look at, most textbooks that you look at, will talk about five myths or particles up to five microns. That's not necessarily 100% true in that you can inhale particles up to probably 30 microns. It's where they end up depositing themselves in the respiratory tract, for example. So, you know, the large ones may deposit themselves in the mouth or nasal pharynx area. Some of them will get down into the primary and secondary bronchi, and some of them will even get to an alveolar level where they could cross into the bloodstream, that kind of thing. So size does matter, but you can inhale particles of a variety of sizes. Just when we talk about aerosol transmissible diseases, the general rule of thumb, five microns is our target. So aerosol uh, aerosols in infectious work or in patient work or laboratory work are pretty much ubiquitous in the environment, right? So it can take some of them an hour or longer to settle. And any procedures that you uh, perform that can impart energy, whether it be on the patient, a patient specimen, can create aerosol, which create a hazard in and of its own. The larger droplets will have a tendency to settle out pretty quickly, whereas some of the smaller uh, particles will remain suspended in air for quite some time. So this slide just really shows you, in our standard, some of the regulated communities. So things like skilled nursing facilities and long-term care, which obviously now we're seeing some issues with, and we saw a whole host of issues in, in the state of Washington in the past month or so. Uh, acute care hospitals, including psychiatric clinics and other outpatient settings, there are some exemptions in the standard for dentistry and that kind of thing. 
provided they uh, act as a referring employer, and we'll talk about that on another slide, what that actually, the requirements entail for referring employers are points of entry. Home health care, hospice settings, emergency medical services, and others that may transport. And when you get into outbreak situations, you will have, a, your emergency medical services may get overwhelmed. There are times when you may have law enforcement um, go pick up. And I live in San Francisco and we have a large homeless population and there are a number of diseases that circulate in that population, for example, TB. So if you had a patient that was transmitting to other people and didn't wasn't taking their medication and maybe they weren't compliant and they posed some public health risk, there are laws where law enforcement can pick them up and isolate them and they, the public health system can ensure that they have direct observed therapy, which means they take their medication and that kind of thing. So law enforcement may be exposed, EMS and firefighters may be exposed, people like uh, funeral home workers or medical examiners, which may perform autopsies or suctioning or perform some aerosol generating procedure on a cadaver or a deceased body, uh, and laboratories like we talked about. What is a referring employer? So a referring employer is someone basically, this is a little bit of an oversimplified definition, who isn't set up necessarily to treat that patient or can't perform, is not set up to perform high uh, hazard procedures on that patient, which we'll talk about what some of those are in a minute, but where they may present. So if you had an outpatient clinic and you weren't set up to uh, take care of, uh, obviously, the smallpox patient or the plague patient or the brucella or TB patient, then what you're going to do is you're going to isolate them and refer them. So things like you're going to put them, go to that room on the corner, and there there's a telephone. I'm going to call you and ask you some screening questions to see if you kind of meet this case, case definition or, or your exposure risk. And so I'm not exposed to you, but I'm going to wait till there's a medical transport or EMS that comes to pick you up that's set up to do it. Get in drawer number one or two, and there's a disposable thermometer. Take your temperature. Maybe there's a some disposable surgical mask in there you can put on your face for source control. So if you're coughing or sneezing, they'll catch the larger droplets. And then we're going to refer you to a treatment center where you can be treated. So you're going to minimize the exposure in that point of entry, but, and you're not really performing any procedures on them, but you would be a referring employer. You would refer to another institution that could handle them. So what are some of the written requirements under the ATV standard? So we require that employers have a written exposure control plan, and there are a number of things that are required to be in that exposure control plan. What we've seen is some employers will have uh, exposure control plans strictly for aerosol transmissible diseases. Others will combine uh, in their exposure control plan the bloodborne pathogens and aerosol transmissible disease program, and that's acceptable as well as long as it's thorough and addresses all the elements that need to be covered. And some of those include obviously identifying administrators, somebody who's going to ensure that the program is going to be successfully implemented, make sure that they review it annually and see if there are any changes or updates need to be made depending on what's going on at the time, uh, make sure the written source control procedures are included, they've identified and controlled for the high hazard procedures, they have engineering controls, which may need to be tested or preventive maintenance they need to be performed on them and ensure that that work is being done that they have a respiratory protection program, and we'll talk about that specifically a little bit later, that they're communicating to employees on the hazards of the workplace, they're training them, and they're keeping medical records and records of, you know, maintenance of, uh, of equipment that's important to the program. So 
this slide just sort of talks about the interface between uh, types of transmission-based precautions and some of the organisms that we see. It's quite variable. In the healthcare setting, it's looked at a, a very differently than what we would look at it, for example, in the laboratory setting. So in the laboratory setting, because you are culturing organisms and you may have them in culture in significantly more concentrated quantities than you may be exposed to from a patient, right? Because we're using selective media to grow them uh, so that we can either maybe develop a vaccine or maybe we develop a test or uh, use it as part of the identification process for a case patient. So it changes things. And if we perform procedures on it that create aerosols, we put ourselves at risk. So the precautions are a little bit different there. So it's unique to each workplace or exposure rather. But in the context of healthcare, there's, they typically refer to precautions in three ways, contact, droplets, and airborne infectious diseases. The most extreme in terms of contact would be something like Ebola, where if you're gonna treat a patient, obviously there is no surface of your body that's not uncovered because the viremia is high, and they shed the virus in a lot of different body fluids, and it's very hard to protect yourself against. So it's, it's critical that you have procedures in place for donning and doffing and training for every step of your interaction with that patient. Whereas in airborne uh, infections, we talk about things like measles. So for those of you who are epidemiologists or maybe you don't have an epidemiological background, um, we talk about, in terms of reproduction numbers, a term called the ROR naught, which means for each patient, how many people they could potentially, case patient rather, how many people they could potentially infect with that organism. So in the terms of measles, you could have a person that was sick in a community that had low herd immunity. Measles is probably the most communicable because it requires a very, very high herd immunity, something like 95, 98%. So vaccination is critical. And if there is herd immunity, obviously, then you limit the number of vul the vulnerable population of people who are exposed that could get ill. But you could have someone that walked on a train or a bus and left 30 minutes later, you have 30 people on that train or bus, half those people uh, of that 30, maybe 15 will come down with measles if they aren't immunologically challenged, meaning they don't have circulating antibodies because as maybe as a child they had uh, a natural measles infection or they were vaccinated so they are conferred some immunity. And then there are some other examples on this slide of other infectious diseases like tuberculosis, which is a common one that we deal with that circulates around the world that is under airborne precaution. And then there's this whole issue of droplet precautions. Droplet precautions is challenging because it assumes that, which is sort of the basis for this whole social distancing, uh, within that first three or four feet, the large droplets will settle. There may be some small aerosols, but it doesn't really look at it from an aerosol context. And we're gonna talk about later on when we talk about some investigations of some meningitis cases, that doesn't necessarily ring true for all the organisms that come under this. And actually, uh, Neisseria meningitis or meningococcal uh, meningitis is one of them, and I can show you in uh, some of the case examples, investigation examples, why that's a problem. Plague would be another one. So individuals could have bubonic plague, which would be a little bit less of a concern, or they could have pneumonic, where they're actually breathing out and coughing it, and one person infects another. So you're really concerned more or less about air, airborne transmission. So there's some that fall under droplet diseases that short-range aerosols are concerned, and I think that there's this gray area 
between airborne precautions and droplets that we have never really addressed in America. Um, and it, it, it's something that we should consider. And then if you notice sort of the last item under there, any disease that a public health officer recommends droplet precautions for. So in, whenever you have a, a new organism, virus, bacteria, fungus uh, that you've never seen before, maybe until they know or have enough information to decide where it should fall in the transmission-based precaution spe spectrum, they may put it as droplet or they may put it as airborne and, and later downgrade it until they know, until there's significant data. And local health commissioners are been tasked in public health to make these decisions. And then under our standard, whenever we have a novel or unknown pathogen, it automatically goes under airborne infectious uh, precautions until we know better. And to give you examples of this, uh, 2002-2003, there was a SARS outbreak in the world. 2009, we had H1 influenza. And the initial panic with that one, is it ended up being not much more significant than the regular seasonal influenza. But H1N1, hemagglutinin, its name, influenza A viruses are named based on their surface protein. So you have a hemagglutinin and neuraminidase. And there's uh, different ways you can have recombinants. And, and different viruses can interchange hemoglobin and neuraminidase. But basically, the 1918 pandemic uh, strain of influenza was a H1N1. Now, the difference was it was genetically different. It had genes from pigs and birds and humans. So it was different than the one in 1918, which made it a less pathogenic. But when it initially presented an H1N1, you don't know until you get subsequent data. So this is a prime example of when you first identify it as an H1N1, you can't discern from whether it has pandemic potential as the Spanish flu did, or whether it has a lesser pathogenic potential like the 09 influenza outbreak did. So until it's characterized molecularly and you know more about the case patients and you have more data, we put it under airborne infections. And that's a prime example of you don't know until you know. And then in 2012, oh, it says 2015, but it was actually 2012, um, there was a MERS outbreak in the world, and it kind of smoldered up to 2015, but it started in 2012. And then 2020, uh, now what we're dealing with in 2020, novel coronavirus, it started in 2019 in China. So in the exposure control plan, there are some things you need to do. Obviously, we talked about annual review of the program, uh, doing inspections and correcting deficiencies is something that you need to be concerned with and then making sure that it's available to your employees. We talked about administrator responsible people, identifying different job classifications is important, who is exposed, uh, what hazard procedures they're performing that puts them at an increased level or a risk of exposure, and then assignment of specific job tasks, when certain personal protective equipment should be used or respirators, and when they should not, that kind of thing. And then we need to look at implementation in terms of decontamination, disposal of waste, how do you dispose of bed linen from a patient, um, and then engineering control implementation. So we talk on this slide as we continue to talk about what, what comprises the exposure control plan, source control measures, which we talked about, you know, isolation, uh, masking your patients, you're transporting them down a hallway, and they're having some respiratory symptoms. Obviously, you want to put source control on them, that kind of thing and then identify and isolate people who are suspected cases, those that you're not potentially infecting other patients or healthcare workers in, in, in the hospital, that kind of thing. Limited employee exposures, when cases aren't in airborne infections isolation, and we talked about things like 
source control, our social distancing, ways we can deal with that. And actually at the bottom of this, I included a reference for you guys because on one of our websites, we actually have different templates for what a biosafety, very basic templates. I mean, obviously you would expand in more detail for your own establishments, but what uh, exposure control plan looks like, a biosafety program, and then some referring procedures. So you kind of have something to start from. There needs to be a mechanism to communicate with employees. Specifically, if you have a, uh, say you had a case patient that was present, maybe they didn't know, that had tuberculosis, or you had a um, employee that converted and now we're x-raying them to determine whether they have active TB or they're latent, or maybe they became PPD positive, not because they had active disease, but maybe they were from another country where they get, routinely get BCG vaccine and they, they're always gonna come up positive so we need to test them for quantum parent. This will help you prevent myths and rumors because whenever you get in any institution, that's gonna happen when people find out somebody's been exposed or sick so that you have clear communication so you know where it stands, what the recommendations are for the employees that are working in that area, that kind of thing. And then procedures to ensure that there's a supply of PPE, which is one of the challenges now in America, and equipment for normal ops in foreseeable emergencies, training and record keeping, which we talked about, and then surge for first receivers. And I know most of you have never heard the term first receiver. A first receiver is basically someone who would be a first responder in a biological release. And to give you an example would be the anthrax letters of October 2001, where there were individuals that were going um, post offices and they were getting the letters, containing the letters, decontaminating the area, the person who would be exposed to a hazard that could be posed to them through an infectious aerosol. So control measures, we talk about case identification and placement, negative personal isolation and that kind of thing, uh, patient specimens in the BSC, so they're under engineering control, that's an example. And then all the things we already talked about, cleaning, decontamination, information for vendors or contractors that come on site, to give you an example of what some of these engineering controls look like, at the top right, there's the image of what a biosafety cabinet looks like, how the airflows work in it. It's designed to be negative pressure to pull, to, to pull the air away from the employee that's working in there so you're not positive pressure and blowing that organism in their face. And then the bottom example is an example of a negative pressure isolation room, which is another example of an engineering control. So we will see right now in America a number of people walking around wearing masks. And it's, it's disconcerting because I've seen people with full-on beards that are wearing masks. I've had queries from people that are working in offices that are wearing masks and they're not really wearing them appropriately or not re really wearing the appropriate uh, make and model to address whatever their concerns may be. And so to to explain to people that aren't healthcare workers, the laboratorians who routinely have to wear this kind of protective equipment for their job, there are a number of things we have to do to make it effective, including you have to have a medical evaluation. And sometimes we do that by sending someone to a healthcare provider. It could be a PA, a nurse practitioner, a doctor, whoever, to medically evaluate them to ensure they can actually wear a respirator without any problems and they're not gonna have anxiety or panic attack or they don't have COPD or they're not a smoker and you know breathing issues aren't a problem for them, that kind of thing. And so once they get medically cleared, then they can be fit tested on the models that they will be using uh, to carry out, hopefully successfully carry out their duties. And then they need to be trained. So 
uh, on how to use a respirator, how to clean it, how to store it, uh, how to perform negative and positive uh, pressure seal checks. So when these things aren't done, the program isn't necessarily effective. And then the training has to be uh, done annually or, and fit testing needs to be done annually at a minimum or more frequently as it's warranted if the person has changes. Obviously, if you have a car wreck and you're changing your facial features or you put on weight or you lost weight, that kind of thing, you may need to be fit tested uh, on a more frequent basis. Surgical mask. So what a surgical mask was truly designed for was for a doctor or nurse or someone in surgery to prevent breathing uh, heavy droplets or spitting he heavy droplets into what is a sterile field. It was not designed to protect them from aerosols. So A, you don't get a tight fit. So whereas you have an N95 or higher respiratory protection, which would be required to be included in a respiratory protection program, you're ideally protecting against 95% of, per, uh, of the particulates and 5% of the particulates are supposed to cross that barrier or get into the respirator kind of thing, where you don't have that with surgical masks. And there's a, a lot of data that's out there in peer-reviewed journal articles and that kind of thing. There were some published in 06 about uh, influenza. I know that uh, Lisa Brousseau, uh, who's an industrial hygienist that specializes in aerosol biology, if you uh, look up some of her peer-reviewed journal articles, there's a number of data that talk, talks about this specifically. So they don't fit tightly to the face. They're not designed to filter air being inspired by the user. Obviously, you don't get that tight fit. And there's certain ASTM uh, test methods for uh, bacterial and submicron, basically filtration and penetrability, breathing resistance, and then ability to uh, withstand synthetic blood or flammability, that kind of thing. So I just encourage you to really do more research on this. A lot of people are using surgical masks and thinking it's really affording them a lot of protection against aerosol transmissible pathogens, which it really doesn't. It, there are a lot of limitations. So in California, one of the things that we do do is under the aerosol transmissible disease standard, whenever someone performs a high hazard procedure, which are things like intubation, or you're bagging a patient, or you're suctioning them, or you're mechanically ventilating them, or you're ECMO, where you're oxygenating blood outside the body, anything where you're creating an aerosol potentially, or you could be exposed to it, then you're required and you're in that breathing zone because you're over the patient and you're working in their personal space, right? So you're required to wear a PAPR. And a minimum in 95 if you cannot wear PPR. And let me give you an example why you may not be able to do it. So it's positive pressure. It's blowing out air, which makes it comfortable to work in for some time, and they're reusable, and you can decontaminate them, that kind of thing. The only limitation is you have to ensure you have probably multiple batteries because you want your batteries charged. But if you're working in a surgical, uh, sterile surgical field and you're in surgery, you don't want to be blowing out air, because obviously air isn't sterile, into a wound of a patient. So that's an example where you may use some other kind of, like a surgical 95 or something, when you can't, obviously it's frowned upon to perform surgery on a TB patient. You want to try to treat them first, but there's emergency, emergencies happen, then you still want to be able to have some kind of uh, respiratory protection if you can't use a PAPR, which is positive pressure. So P100, so let me explain to you, look at different types of respirators, what N means, what P means. N means it's basically non-oil resistant. So this is a, a 
we really measured this by looking at oil mist. So a P100 filter would be something that would be resistant to oil mist and N is not resistant to oil mist. And in the EMS setting, when high hazard procedures, intubation, that kind of thing, and heroic measures may, may need to be performed, uh, it may not always be practical also to wear a PAPR. And there are recommendations that you can refer to by the International Association for Firefighters because obviously there are issues when you're in transport, being if you're out on a shift and you're driving around for six hours, you may not be able to charge the batteries and that kind of thing. So a P100 filter may be, uh, or N100 may be an alternative to that. And then some people will wear half uh, face filtering face pieces with the lavender cartridges that have HEPA filtration for biologics. So in our standard, we require medical services. Things like there are certain required vaccinations, which we'll talk about in a second, TB assessments, we talked about PBDs and quantifying on that kind of thing uh, on a routine basis, or other medical surveillance for other specific operations, right? When I used to work in a laboratory setting and I had employees that worked with not just regular TB, but we would get some of the worst cases for identification, MDR, XDR, obviously it's critical that they have good respiratory protection. And I even had them on her, in, on uh, more enhanced medical surveillance in that we would do their uh, PPDs and quantify around every six months. And if there was exposure incident or there was a, a, a incident where something was outside of containment, uh, accident and I had decontaminated laboratory, then it may even be every quarter or monthly as warranted. So you have to make adjustments in your own program based on your needs and your risk assessment, but that risk assessment process should be in place. And then post-exposure. So if I have a meningitis exposure, how do I get them to pro or uh, how do I get them a medical evaluation? And if an employee is exposed to novel coronavirus at work when they're treating a patient, how do I get them out on that 14-day quarantine for precautionary removal? And we'll talk about that more in a second. So employers required to pay in California for medical services uh, that are, are required to be provided. These images below are just pictures of a chest x-ray from a patient with SARS coronavirus. Other things they need to ensure, like confidentiality, obviously. For example, a medical clearance for respirators. So you send someone and they get a medical clearance for a respirator, whether they do in, in, in inpatient visit with a healthcare provider clinician, or they send in a questionnaire for evaluation, all the employer really needs is they need to know what the results or clearance results from that medical provider was. Is this person cleared based on your review or medical assessment? Not necessarily every question they need to answer about every medical condition they have. They don't need that level of detail. So maintaining some level of confidentiality, and then uh, lab tests conducted by a credit lab under medical services, and then following any applicable public health guidelines. Vaccinations that we require be offered. Now, an employee can decline them in California, but we require they be offered seasonal influenza for healthcare providers, MMR, and then maintain boosters, varicella, and DPT. Anybody who has patient contact, which is at risk of being exposed to these aerosol transmissible pathogens, we require they be immunized. There are certain um, organisms or infections that are required to be reported to public health. And every jurisdiction is going to be different, local, state, federal, that kind of thing. But at least in California, we require that these RATDs be reported under Title 17, Section 2500. And then one of the things I do want to note that it includes unusual or novel disease, which we're in a pandemic right now. 
So uh, novel coronavirus would be one of them. It's considered reportable. Exposure incidents need to be recorded. So if, if a healthcare worker is exposed to a patient and maybe they don't have personal protective equipment, they need to, uh, their employer needs to document that. And then if there is some exposure, they need to notify local public health. So local public health can follow up with the ensuring that that case patient or suspect case rather, because they're not a case patient yet, that suspect case is interviewed, maybe placed in the quarantine, whatever measures need to be implemented in the, in the name of public health are carried out. So this just talks about post-exposure prophylaxis and treatment, written opinions to an employer, uh, testing and isolation, which we sort of talked about. And then the whole concept of uh, precautionary removal in the context of TB conversion, for example. Obviously, you wouldn't want somebody who had active TB working in a facility, breathing on their coworkers, that kind of thing. And so, or if you had exposure incident and until you knew whether they converted or not, you might want it for some other diseases because TB takes a long time to present in a, in a, in a, as a case patient. Even in laboratory setting and culture, it takes four to six weeks to grow. So it's very slow. So it's going to take a while. So just because you had an accident, you may get infected, but you're not going to have symptoms and actively be breathing it out for some time. But with some of the other things with a, a shorter incubation period, you know, brucella or novel coronavirus or something like that, it measles, you may be uh, more concerned. And then ensure that a physician or local health officer recommends removal for infection control purposes, that employees pay and benefits are maintained, and then the employee is precautionary removal period does not end until the pot potentially infectious period of the employee is over. So that's going to be variable infection by infection. This slide just sort of covers uh, what goes into a biosafety plan, which is a requirement for laboratories. And I'm not going to go into all of it in detail because you can read it at your leisure. But some of the important things include it requires a designation of a biosafety officer. It's the only regulation that I've seen, at least I know in my state, that requires identification and allocation of a biosafety officer, someone who can make sure this, the implementation of this program is carried out and that is responsible for the investigations and assessments, risk assessments, and that kind of thing. Once again, the engineering controls, identifying the different types of work uh, and tasks that expose people or could put people at risk, developing safe handling procedures, PPE, decontamination procedures, uh, medical services, some of the other things, and then field procedures for emergencies or uncontrolled releases, which are some of the things we sort of already covered. There are an Appendix D. Appendix E, a, for healthcare facilities in our regulation, talks about the organisms and how they sort of be classified, whether airborne, drop of precautions, that kind of thing. Appendix D talks about laboratories, aerosol transmissible disease pathogens laboratory. And it covers a whole host of things, bacteria, funguses, some outliers like rickettsia or uh, mycoplasmas. And then I just gave you a slide that had covered, showed you what some of the viruses are they cover. So all select agents, which would be all the bioterrorism organisms, everything from Bacilla, anthrax, to Francisella, to plague. So I just put that in one bullet. And I put Shapiroviruses on there because it was a viral hemorrhagic fever that was identified not long ago, less than a decade ago, in South America. And so there's a designation in the regulation for pathogens designated by the biosafety officer, similar to, in a public health context, pathogens designated by the health commissioner or health officer. And so if the biosafety officer designates something needs to be added, like I did in my laboratory with Shapiroviruses, 
then it could also be included. Or novel or unknown pathogens are also considered in all the sections, whether it's a virus, bacteria, fungus, whatever, rickettsia, are also considered to be aerosol transmissible under the aerosol transmissible disease standard for laboratories under Appendix D specifically. So we're going to talk a little bit about Neisseria meningitidis. And so basically, for those of you who don't know, we typically see these infections in military bases or barracks where people are in close quarters and they, they're in their personal space or college dormitories, that kind of thing. You'll see high school kids sometimes in outbreaks where people are sharing beverages. You know, about probably five or six years ago, we saw um, outbreaks in America in gay communities, that kind of thing. And so it's transmitted by direct contact and it's also called a transmission by respiratory droplets. However, this is one of those ones I'm really concerned about short range aerosols. And you'll see when we talk about this in a second. So the incubation period is two to 10 days, commonly two to four, uh, depending on exposure and infectious dose, right? And then how do you acquire it in a laboratory setting? Droplets, aerosols, you perform aerosol generated procedures, or touching mucous membranes, that kind of thing. And then I, years later, I did an investigation that in, the, in 2014, I published an article in the MMWR about increasing containment specifically for this organism, and we'll talk about why in a second. So in December, and I can't even remember, I want to say, it was maybe 2010. I can't remember the year exactly. It's been so long now. But on December 3rd of whatever particular year that was, there was a welfare check that was performed on someone uh, who ended up being a case patient in their home by a local police department and uh, ambulance service. And so basically, the, they went there. They found the patient obtunded. And obtunded just means they're sort of fading in and out of consciousness. They're not cognizant. And they have vomiting on themselves. So they transported this patient to the hospital. And then about a dozen people worked on this patient in the ED, including a high hazard procedure, intubation, right? And so the next day in the morning, the cerebral spinal fluid tested positive for a gram-negative diplococcoide bacteria. So this individual became a suspect case for a meningococcal uh, bacteria infection. So no report was made. And remember, we talked about certain um, organisms are reportable to local public health or state public health are tribal, federal, depending on your jurisdiction, right? So it wasn't reported. And then by plea 30, the, the blood was positive for gram-negative diplococci. I think they had done a, a blood culture anagram stain. And then no report to the local health officer or health department was made at that time. So by the sixth, the, the final CSF results came in to confirm a Neisseria meningitis infection. So now you have a confirmed case you had a number of people that were exposed in the police department, the ER people, uh, respiratory therapists that worked on the patient, the hospital, and then the ambulance workers. And so a local county received a report that uh, they notified the ambulance service, but there was no report to the police or fire department, right? So they were left out. And it's critical because there's a window in the incubation period while these people need to get post-exposure prophylaxis. So then finally, the county reported to the police and then the police notifies a few of the officers that were intimately involved in the response. And the police officer sees the doctor and is hospitalized. And then later on, a respiratory therapist, because they didn't necessarily tell the people in the ER that responded to this patient, uh, uh, was unconscious and was taken by ambulance to the hospital. So by the 11th, uh, the respiratory therapist had informed uh, that he was hospitalized, the ED managers. And they started exposure, uh, ex 
disclosure investigation and pro providing prophylaxis to all the exposed individuals, which is a little bit late actually. And then the hospital inf infection control and employee health managers uh, completed exposure analysis with radiology and respiratory therapy. So what went wrong in this particular case? The hospital did not recommend immediate report of suspect case on the 4th. Uh, hospital not immediately report confirmed case on the 6th. The hospital claimed that the ambulance service on December 7th never notified the fire police department. And then the hospital did not initiate exposure analysis. So when we talked about documenting and investigating internally exposure incidents, this is critical so that you can also transfer that information to the public health department so they can follow up and ensure that people get treated in a timely manner. And then some diseases, such as meningococcal disease, require prompt prophylaxis, which we talked about. So in 2012, I investigated a meningitis case where a 25-year-old young man who graduated from a college in August, started working in October. He was deceased in April uh, uh, of 2012. So it was a very short duration. He had very limited experience. And so on a Friday, he had complained he had been out sick about two weeks before with influenza, ILI-like illness. So there's a reason to suspect that he was immunocompromised in some way. And then on that Friday, we went back to work for a few days. On that Friday, he had an onset of headache, fever, neck pain, and stiffness. And then the next day, his roommate drove him to the hospital, and he had a petechial rash. He also was obtunded. And then there was a number of employees that were exposed in an emergency department setting as well. There was concerned about people that worked in his laboratory. And they were performing a number of aerosol generating procedures. So this is why I talk about nystatin meningitis and short range aerosols, because that's also a concern. Even though we say it's just droplets, I don't believe it's just droplets, because those people who were treating that patient in the ambulance, the police department, when they did that visit to the house and they didn't even move the person, were exposed and some of them got sick and converted. And then with the, in the lab setting where people performing aerosol generating procedures, this person got actually sick and died. So it's tricky. There's the whole area that droplet precautions doesn't necessarily cover, and this is a prime example. And you can find more information on this particular case in the MMWR I published in uh, 2014. There's a reference at the bottom. So this slide just gives you an example of some of the aerosol generating procedures that we see in the laboratory. So we think about alternatives. So a catalase test where traditionally you're putting a peroxide-like reagent on a slide and there's some organism on there and you're looking for a reaction. You know, obviously if it bubbles, it's reacting. But instead of performing this on an open bench, performing in a BSC, or instead of performing on a slide, put it in a culture tube that's closed so that it's bubbling and it's contained. So there are alterations and procedures we can make, whether in the healthcare setting or treating a patient or in the laboratory setting, which will make it safer for us. So that's why the risk assessment, infection control, and biosafety officers are so important to uh, the implementation of this regulation. Training is important. Obviously, we talked about initially and annually its requirement, and it needs to be uh, at the vocabulary level and in the language that most of the people can understand, and it must be specific to the particular workplace. So what are some of the required training elements? Accessibility is the written standard. We go over the general explanation of what an aerosol transmissible disease is, what modes of transmission are, exposure control biosafety plan is applicable to that particular place of employ, and then the ex explanation of appropriate methods or recognizing tasks that put people at low, moderate, high risk, that kind of thing. Delineating and then delineating what kind of engineering controls we need to put in place, what kinds of PPE we need to put in place, 
or what kind of administrative controls we can put in place to remove people from uh, that risk of exposure. And then explanation of mechanisms that reduce it, like we talked about. Uh, administrative controls, engineering controls, that kind of thing. Information on selection and decontamination and handling of PPE, uh, TB surveillance procedures, respiratory protection training, information on vaccines, signs and symptoms of diseases that they could be exposed to so that they can make sure they present early or get medical services early instead of not knowing the signs and symptoms and just thinking they have the flu kind of thing. And then before it's too far gone to give them that post-exposure prophylaxis recording and investigating exposure incidences, and then having some emergency procedures for search, which is one of the things we're seeing now in America. So there are a number of records under this particular standard in California that we require be kept. Training is one of them for three years. And then I'm not gonna go through all these in detail. Once again, you can read, but you see some of the things we require them to keep. When you look at exposure incidences, one of the things that we require is that that record be kept uh, 30 years plus employment. And in section 3203 and 3204, which refer to medical records, the reason we do that is because there are times that say you have a therapy for a patient that has some kind of thyroid problem and you're using uh, some kind of a radioisotope where you may have a, a potential for biological contamination from a patient, which could be infectious exposure and a chemical or radiological thing. So in combination. So when you're dealing with that, Obviously, because of cancer and that kind of thing, which is why we require 30 years plus employment, for, particularly for mixed things, like decontaminating a spill or a patient vomited and we know they have, or they uh, coughed up sputum and they have some respiratory infection. So now you're dealing with a biologic and you're dealing with, you know, a chemical disinfectant. And so you, do, you clean up that spill or body fluid and then you have to dispose of it. So now you're not just exposed to the biologic, but also the chemical like we with the radiological example. So that's why we require the, the 30 years plus employment, keeping them those types of records. And with that, I would like to conclude. I know it was kind of quick and there was a lot of material. If you have questions, I can be emailed at this email. I'm happy to uh, correspond with you if you have any questions.